0: One of the words we hear more at this time of year than any other time of year is the word peace. It's uh, written on Christmas cards and decorations. Uh, the phrase peace on earth is something that we'll hear read and sung. Uh, many people have the idea that, that Jesus coming into the world was meant to bring peace. They might know much about the Bible but, but they, they, they've got the message that jesus coming into the world it's something to do with peace but then they look around the world and they don't see much evidence of peace and it seems that something has gone wrong somewhere and then as quickly as the the phrase peace on earth is trotted out over the festive season it will again be forgotten people will get on with their lives with no real change and in home's workplaces and nations there will be little peace little peace on earth and actually Jesus never said that he came to bring universal peace Jesus in fact said the opposite he said in Mark 10 34 do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth I have not come to bring peace but a sword. The phrase in Luke 2:14 that's translated as peace on earth, in some Bible versions is better translated as peace among those with whom He is pleased. Yes, there is peace as a result of Jesus coming into the world. We, we see that here in verse five. Uh, it begins, "And he shall be their, their peace. But the peace being talked about there is among uh, Jesus' flock. In verse 4, Jesus is pictured as the good shepherd, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He is the true and ultimate shepherd of his people. And what does it mean to have Jesus as your shepherd? Uh, what, what, does, what does that mean? Well, it means in verse 4 that if you have Jesus as your shepherd, you will dwell secure. That when you're on earth, whatever happens to you, you will have a salvation that can't be taken from you. And that one day he will lead you safely to heaven where sin, Satan and suffering can no longer touch you. Jesus is the good shepherd that has never uh, lost Any of his sheep and will lead his people safely to heaven. Uh, So, those who have Jesus as their shepherd experience peace in the words of verse 5 peace with God uh, and peace from anything uh, that could threaten that, peace from anything that could snatch us away from him. Uh, And we also uh, more and more experience peace with, with our brothers and sisters in Christ and our fellow men and women because the Holy Spirit works peace in us. So yes, Jesus coming into the world brings peace to his people. God's people experience peace with him uh, and peace with each other. And so the reason the world is in the state that it's in is because not everyone accepts the peace that God offers. And what we have in the second half of this chapter is really Micah, the prophet, looking forward uh, to our day and describing what our day would be like. He looks forward to the birth of Jesus and then he describes the days that would come after the birth of Jesus. Both immediately after the birth of Jesus but also uh, 2,000 and more years after the birth of Jesus. All, all the days between Jesus' his first coming and his second coming. What will life be like on earth after the birth of Jesus? Micah tells us in these verses. Um, They help us understand the days in which we are living. So that's the the message of this chapter. We're going to look at it under two headings. Seeing firstly that God's peace produces polarising reactions or opposite reactions. Uh, But God's peace produces polarising reactions. Uh, Seeing this especially in verses 7 through 9. It's always good to have realistic expectations. Uh, maybe uh, the reason that, that so many people end up disappointed at this time of year is because they have unrealistic expectations. Uh, maybe children have unrealistic expectations of what presents will get or, or adults have unrealistic uh, expectations of how it will all be sweetness and light when, when all the family are, are together in a confined space. For a long time, if the the company behind Marmite expected everyone to 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 love their product, they would be in for a nasty surprise. But but instead, they've they've embraced the the polarizing effect that their product has on people. Uh, they've turned the fact that, that some people love it and some people hate it uh, into Far from being a, a negative into the basis of their advertising campaign. So they have a realistic expectations for their product. They know that not everyone is going to like it. Uh, they're, they're not shattered when some people don't. And here in verses 7 and 8 we have what could be called a Marmite reaction to something that, that is infinitely more serious We have two completely opposite reactions to the peace offered through Jesus. And the first reaction in verse 7 is positive. Michael looks forward to the return of God's people from exile, the, the coming of Jesus into the world and the days in which we are now living. And he says that in that day, in our day, the people of God, they, they won't just be in the land of Israel like they were in his day, but they'll be scattered throughout the world. They'll be in the midst of many peoples, as he says in the second line of verse 7. And Does that not describe Christians around the world today? Christians are in the midst of many peoples. God, people aren't... In one country uh, as they once were, but they're spread throughout the nations of the world. Uh, The Lord Jesus is worshipped in in more languages than any of us could name. Uh, He's worshipped in countries uh, with more flags uh, than any of us could draw. And how has that come about how did it go from Jesus being born in Bethlehem and dying on the cross uh, outside Jerusalem? How, how did it go from there to the message of the gospel spreading throughout the world? Well, we have picture language for how that has come about in verses 5 and 6 and how it continues to come about. Uh, the countries mentioned there, Assyria and Nimrod or Babylon, they are pictures of the enemies of God's kingdom. Uh, But despite the opposition, God's under-shepherds, his his ministers and elders will take the gospel to the nations of the earth. uh, As all Christians Christians spread out to these nations. And and in verse 6, they'll do it with the sword. Not by conquest, but with the sword of the Spirit, which the New Testament tells us is the word of God. Uh, so it's, it's picture language of, of shepherds being raised up, of a sword being used. But we should understand this as, as the gospel going out to the nations of the world uh, in the face of, of the opposition. And as that message goes to the nations of the world, bringing the gospel message, how will people react well, verse 7 says that to some people we will be like dew from the Lord on shards of grass. Uh, the middle of verse 7 there. That means that, that Christians will be a source of life and vitality. And that's not because there's anything special about us, but because it comes from God. Uh, Just as the rain and dew come from God, so uh, does the new life that comes into the lives of men and women, boys and girls, as Christians go out to the nations of the world. Uh, The source of the life isn't us, but it's God. Uh, But as we proclaim the Saviour among the nations, new life will begin to flow. Because god's word produces life we see that from the very beginning of the bible god speaks uh, and and life comes into being uh, and it's the same as we go out with the gospel and it's worth uh, stopping and pausing at verse 7 before we move on because it's really easy to get discouraged as christians it's so easy to focus on those who reject the message. And we would quickly get disheartened if we expected that everyone who heard the gospel would be converted. Uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll soon be disheartened if we, we think everyone will be converted. But, but neither should we give in to pessimism. Uh, because this verse tells us that we as Christians will have a life-giving effect on people around us. Think of, of a, a Christian that you knew before they were saved and then think of the change that has taken place in their life or think of your, your own life and the change that you can see even in yourself. As God has changed your desires, uh, as God has given you, you desires that you never had before and he's taken away desires that you used to have. Or think of someone who you've watched on as they've taken their first faltering steps uh, as a a new Christian believer you've seen them as it were take their first breath uh, and you remember what their life was like beforehand and and it's a, a total transformation and the only explanation is that new life has come to them from on high sadly though that's Although that is the reaction that we love to see, though that is the reaction we long to see, it's not the reaction that we always see. Uh, That's where verses 8 and 9 come in. Because even in the days of great outpourings of rain from heaven, the church will still have enemies. Verse 9 talks about enemies and adversaries. There will always be those who reject the peace that God offers in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 2, we will be to one a fragrance from death to death and to others a fragrance from life to life. Some will believe our message but others will, be, will reject it and be left more guilty as a result. And No wonder Paul adds there, who is sufficient for these things? So right away through the Bible, we're, we're told that there will be two reactions to the gospel. What we see in, in picture language here in Micah, the Apostle Paul uh, spells out for us. And it is important for us as Christians to understand that. We would love it if every time we shared the gospel with someone they believed. But verse while verse 7 Gives us the hope that some will believe, that many will believe. Verses 8 and 9 also tell us that that there will still be enemies. Some will remain as enemies of the cross of Christ. Not primarily our enemies, but enemies of the cross. And Their opposition to, to Jesus will be seen in their opposition to his people. People might think of themselves as good people, but to to oppose God's people is to oppose God himself. God says, he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. So these verses tell us that there will always be opposition. But they also give us a motivation to keep going. Because while the church will never lack enemies, those enemies won't prevail Whether it's enemies in other countries who arrest, imprison, and murder Christ's people, or whether it's those enemies closer to home putting the the political and legal squeeze on those trying to be faithful to God's word. There will always be enemies, but they won't prevail. And of course, as, as Paul says in the New Testament, we're to realize that ultimately our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not fighting against lost men and women, but we're fighting against sin and Satan. But whatever the source of the opposition, verse 9 encourages you to keep going. It encourages you not to give up. Why? Because your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies will be cut off. That's true uh, above all of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, but we uh, follow behind him. And so as we, we enter a new year, in a couple of weeks time, we're not to be afraid of the enemies of the cross, but we're to be afraid for them. We're not to be afraid of them, but we're to be afraid for them. Because in, in verse 15, we see what will happen to those who turn their backs on this life-giving rain from heaven. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Vengeance on the nations that, that had the opportunity to turn up but didn't. The two ultimate destinations of men and women couldn't be any more different. God's peace produces polarising reaction. Some will embrace God's peace and others will rage against it. And of course all of us were in the second camp by nature. All of us were born as enemies of God. Uh, all of us came into this world uh, fighting against God and his plans and purposes, whether that, that rebellion, whether it was, it was uh, nice and outwardly respectable, or, or, or whether, uh, whether it was very obviously rebelling against God. Uh, we, we were all born raging against God, uh, but he ha- has, has reconciled us uh, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. God's peace produces polarising reactions. Uh, the Bible, it, it, is, it is realistic, uh, but, but it is also hopeful. So that's the first thing to know about God's peace. There will be different reactions to it. And we see that in the life of the church. Uh, And so when we see uh, people hear the message and turn away from it, we we shouldn't be totally shocked because that's what God says will happen. But it does hold out the hope as well that others will hear and will believe. But then the second of our two points this evening is that God's peace calls for drastic action. God's peace calls for drastic action. That is that uh, when we experience God's peace in our lives, when we experience peace with God through Jesus Christ, uh, that in itself becomes a call to go to war against the remaining sin in our lives. Uh, a call to go to war against the things that would come between us and God. Has anybody ever got a present in your house which actually did more harm than good? Uh, maybe it was a, a remote control uh, car that was uh, rammed against the skirting boards so often or, or the wall that, that they needed repainting, uh, maybe it was a, a toy that two people wanted to play with and, and it just caused fights or, or a computer uh, console that, that became so addictive that, that the person no longer wanted to spend time with the rest of the family. And perhaps you've said as a parent that if it didn't stop, you would take the present away. Well, if verse 9 has just finished with God talking about the cutting off he's going to do among the nations, verses 10 to 14 tell us about a cutting off that he's going to do a lot closer to home. That is, he's going to cut off those things that are stopping his people knowing and enjoying the peace that he offers. In verses 9 and 10, God says he's going to cut off some of the good gifts that he's given to his people. He's going to cut off their horses, chariots, cities and strongholds. It isn't as if God was a parent who had unwisely given his children gifts that hadn't been good for them. But instead, we as God's people tend to take his good gifts and abuse them. And the things in verses 10 and 11 are things that the people had started to rely on and trust in rather than God. But the very things that people were trusting in to bring them peace were actually cutting them off from peace with God. The people took the very things that should have made them thankful to God and and made them obstacles that came between them and him. In other words, their confidence shifted from God to the gifts that he gave them you know horses and chariots there's nothing wrong with them but but in Micah's day that the people were putting their trust in horses and chariots rather than in God and so sometimes God will take away his gifts from us because he knows that we won't start trusting in him again until he does and so we, we can update the language here from, from horses and, and chariots and cities and strongholds, but whatever it is that we're trusting in, it's a warning not to hold on too tightly to the things of this world, even the, the good things, because if you cling on to them too tightly, God might take them away. John Newton is... Known as the author of Amazing Grace, he, he wrote a letter once to a younger minister uh, after his wife's death. Uh, and Newton uh, said to the other minister that, that he felt that, that his wife had become an idol to him. Uh, now, now reading Newton's other letters from around the same time, it, it seems unlikely. It seems he was a man uh, very committed to God, but, but he clearly felt it to be true. Uh, He felt that that his own wife had become like an idol to him. Uh, Those are the words of a man who was so sensitive to anything coming between him and God. So do you have the same sensitivity when it comes to God's gifts to you? Has some of your confidence and trust shifted from God to his gifts God is so determined that your hope would be in him alone. uh, That he might take some of those gifts from you. Not to, to punish you but to make you trust in him all the more. And if that's what God is going to do when it comes to the good things that we misuse. How much more is he going to cut Cut out the the outright idols in our lives. Uh, We see that in verses 12 through 14. God says there that he'll cut off sorceries, fortune tellers, carved pillars and images. And that he would root out their Asherah images. If in verses 10 and 11 God is going after their, their military securities. God is going after the things that they were trusting in to keep them safe. Now he's going after their religious substitutes. So the tendency of people to trust it in military security, things that will, that will keep us safe, and religious substitutes, uh, things uh, that we can uh, put in the place of God. Sorceries and fortune tellers speak about ways to try and find out the future. That might not seem hugely relevant to most of us, but at the heart of it is a lack of contentment, uh, a dissatisfaction with what God has given them. Because what does it say about God if we seek satisfaction elsewhere? It says that God isn't able to satisfy us and, and so God's not going to stand for it the carved images and the work of their hands in verse 13 speaks of of the worship of idols of course there's not too many people in Scotland today worshiping idols of wood and stone uh, as idols would have been like in in Micah's time but at this time of year particularly we we tend to see what people value we tend to see what people are prepared to sacrifice for and what they're not 21st century idols may be more sophisticated than than little statues and and idols, uh, uh, but God's attitude to them hasn't changed. He'll cut off whatever it is that you redirect your worship towards. And then in verse 14, there's Asherah images. And at the root of it, Asherah worship was all about sex with cult prostitutes and so on. And again, the names have changed, but the sin behind it hasn't. There is nothing new under the sun. And so if we uh, are to know God's peace as individuals and as a church, we need to play our part in cutting off these things from our lives because uh, they want to get in. Satan wants to use them to get, get in and interrupt the peace that God has given us. The sin of taking good things and making them God things. Uh, the sin of dissatisfaction with what God has given us. Uh, and the sins that are all around us in a, a society obsessed with sex. These verses don't present a, a very flattering picture of the church, do they? You know, Micah looks ahead to a time when people will, will believe in the gospel, but, but it's not all going to be perfect. It shows that we need delivered not only from our enemies, but in fact, above all, we need delivered from our own sins. In fact, our own sins are the biggest problem. For us to know peace with God, it's not just the, the enemies out there who need dealt with but it's the sins in here in our own hearts but the good news is that this cutting off isn't just something that God will do one day but something that by his grace God is already doing in our lives he he begins that work here on earth he changes our desires for things He, he helps us by his spirit to put sin to death And and that's actually one of the ways that you will know if you've really responded to the peace that God offers. Part of the evidence will be a daily cutting off sin in your life. It's something we can't do at all before we're Christians. It's something that even after we're Christians we can't do in our own strength. But we can do in the power of the Spirit as we continue to put sin to death. We have a part to play. But praise God that neither our our salvation in the first place or our growth in holiness, growth in Christ-likeness are left up to us because God comes to a people dominated by sins and completely unable to do anything about them and four times he says, I will cut off. I will cut off. Doesn't that point us above all to the work of Jesus. The one who himself was cut off in order to present a purified people to his father. The one who gave him up for his church that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. These verses are really describing what the Lord Jesus will do in our lives by his spirit in order that he might present us to his father without spot and blemish. He says, I will cut off. And so we see peace on earth or rather peace among those with whom God is pleased. There is no peace for those who reject the Prince of Peace. Nor does it mean that we can claim to have peace with God while at the same time being at peace with the sin in our lives. What a a good thing it is that tonight you have a God who isn't concerned with pious platitudes, but a God who is in the business of bringing real change. One who gives us hope that we'll see men and women and boys and girls embrace the gospel offer. And who promises that even when they reject that salvation that they won't be able to destroy or stop his people and the advance of the gospel. And we also see a God whose desire for peace means that he's not going to leave us as his people with divided hearts. uh, Serving God uh, with with one part of our hearts and, and serving the world with the other but that he will do a work of loving destruction in our lives. Uh, And by doing so, he will, as someone has put it, remove any impediment that might cause us to turn aside from him, enabling us to obey him with all our heart, choosing to make God our soul good, joy and glory. We don't have a God who is content to, to just save us and then leave us to to struggle along and and live lives that are dominated by by sin and, and just hopefully stumble over the finish line in the end. But we have a God who saves us and then by his grace equips and enables us to fight against sin, so that more and more in this life we are conformed into the image of Christ, that we would be lights in the darkness just as our Saviour was. And isn't that the sort of peace that would make the heavenly hosts sing for joy? Amen. Well, let's praise the God who doesn't leave us to fight uh, this fight by ourselves in the words of Psalm number 20. Psalm number 20, it's on page 35. Uh, Psalm number 20, page 35. uh, The tune will be number 7. This is a psalm that speaks of the strength Jesus knew from his Father as he, as he went to the cross, as he went into that battle. And if that was true of the Lord Jesus in his great battle, it will be true of us in our daily battles. We'll not be left alone to fight against the the remains of sin in our lives but as the last two lines of of verse 4 say from holy heaven he answers sins his right hand saving power will bring so psalm 20 the tune is number 7 we'll stand and sing praise